Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Tim Lynch. I direct Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Um, as Roger mentioned, we are going to switch gears now over to the criminal side of the law, which is kind of the bread and butter of the Supreme Court's uh, docket. We've had some terrific panels already, and I'm confident that this panel is going to be just as good. We are going to follow the same format as before. Each panelist is going to speak for about 15 minutes. Then we're going to have a very brief second round where each speaker will just have about two or three minutes to respond to what the others have said, and then we're going to open it up and take any questions or comments that you may have before we uh, take a break at 3.30. I know a lot of people have been arriving since we started things off uh, this morning. Let me ask those of you who came with cell phones, would you please double check and make sure that they are turned off as a courtesy to all of our speakers. Our first speaker for this panel uh, is a senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute. Uh, his research interests include tort reform and over-criminalization reform. Before joining Pacific, he served on the legal staff of Koch Industries, where he promoted legal reforms such as setting the minimum standards for the admissibility of expert evidence in state courts. This was in the wake of the Supreme Court's uh, Daubert ruling. Before joining Koch, he served in the Office of Legal Policy at the Department of Justice, where he was responsible for vetting uh, potential judicial nominees. He earned his undergraduate degree at Yale and his law degree at the University of Chicago. His article in uh, the new issue of the Cato Supreme Court Review is entitled, Using Its Sixth Sense, The Roberts Court Revamps the Rights of the Accused. Would you please welcome Mark Chenoweth. Good afternoon. Thanks to the Cato Institute for hosting this event, uh, to Tim Lynch for the kind introduction, and to Ilya Shapiro uh, for extending me the invitation to uh, write this piece uh, and to present my article today and for his astute editorial suggestions uh, as well. The Supreme Court devoted more than 10% of its docket to resolving Sixth Amendment cases this term. When you think about it, that's pretty significant. Uh, for that reason alone, it's uh, worth taking a look at what transpired uh, in this area. We don't have time here to get into all of the cases, so let me dwell on what I believe to be the two most uh, important and most interesting uh, cases, uh, constitutional criminal procedure cases of the term, Oregon v. ICE and Melendez-Diaz v. Massachusetts. There is a lot going on in both of these cases, and they repay close examination. For those who have been following the Apprendi line of cases, Oregon v. ICE immediately fascinates because it ruptured the Apprendi coalition. You will recall that the 2000 Apprendi v. New Jersey case joined the Rehnquist Court's two most thoroughgoing conservatives, Justices Scalia and Thomas, with that court's three staunchest liberals, Justices Stevens, Souter, and Ginsburg, to decide that the right to trial by jury requires the prosecution to charge in the indictment and prove to the jury, beyond a reasonable doubt, every fact that contributes to the length of a defendant's sentence. That coalition is held up through several succeeding cases in which the court extended Apprendi. Here, however, Justice Ginsburg led a new coalition, including Justices Stevens, Kennedy, Breyer, and Alito, that voted against extending Apprendi. Note that even though the Apprendi coalition broke down, the justices' votes still did not break along ideological lines. Although the majority is predominantly liberal, it includes Justices Kennedy and Alito, and although the dissent is primarily conservative, it includes Justice Souter. Putting to one side the interesting composition of each side in this case, the shift in the court's direction is noteworthy too. Oregon v. Ice asked whether a judge may find facts post-verdict in order to decide whether to sentence a defendant to concurrent or consecutive terms, or whether, given the ruling in Apprendi, such facts must be found by the jury. Oregon is one of a few states that sets concurrent sentences as the default rule uh, for, criminal, uh, for criminal sentencing, 
and there judges must find certain legislatively assigned facts before ordering consecutive sentences. Since the court held as recently as 2007's Cunningham v. California case that a jury must, which incidentally uh, was authored by Justice Ginsburg as well, uh, that a jury must decide any fact that exposes a defendant to a greater potential sentence, some observers, and obviously the dissenters in this case, view this case as an easy case that ICE should win hands down. However, the court held, uh, in somewhat of a surprise, that a judge may find facts to impose consecutive sentences, thus preserving Oregon's uh, concurrent sentencing default rule. This raises the question whether the result in ICE is coherent or whether the court has, as scholar Frank Bowman has colorfully uh, claimed, veered into bizarro world. As an aside, uh, the vehemence with which some have greeted the result in ICE makes me wonder whether these folks had big money on Oregon v. ICE to complete the West Coast trifecta. You know, first we had Blakely v. Washington and then California v. Cunningham, and they were really banking on Oregon v. ICE, and it just didn't come through for them. But in any event, contra Bowman, I do think there's coherence to be found here, and notwithstanding the fact uh, that Justices Scalia, Thomas, and the Chief Justice dissented in ICE, I will argue that the result in ICE and the rationale underlying it can best be characterized as resulting from an originalist jurisprudence. Uh, and thus, even though the ICE court did not extend Apprendi, it still continued the Sixth Amendment's originalist renovation uh, last term. Uh, the first originalist aspect of ICE is its primary emphasis on the historical role of juries. Juries at the time of the founding did not have a say in whether a defendant received a concurrent or a consecutive sentence. Uh, and in fact, juries have never really had uh, such input. For this reason, the majority concludes that the original meaning of a right to a trial by jury must not have included the right for a jury to decide that aspect of sentencing. The dissent rejects this logic, arguing that common law history is irrelevant because it has no bearing on the different circumstance where a legislature has conditioned uh, the higher sentence on the finding of a particular fact. While it's true that common law history is irrelevant under a straightforward reading of Apprendi's rule, uh, the Sixth Amendment itself does not compel that broad formulation that, that the Apprendi court delivered. Uh, to be sure, the rule of ICE thus represents a course correction, but the facts of the case, I believe, revealed that the rule of Apprendi, as initially construed, was too broad. And Justice Ginsburg, I think here, was uh, seeking to distill a more defensible rule consistent with the central concern of Apprendi. And, and I would argue that the central concern of Apprendi, and, and the one I think that, uh, that she argues as well, uh, was the legislative removal of facts from the jury's consideration and recharacterization of those same facts as considerations uh, for the judge in, uh, in determining an enhanced sentence. Uh, the dissent notes that the court has long held uh, that whether the jury trial right attaches to a fact turns on the penal consequences associated with the fact and not its formal definition as an element of a crime. Uh, so the ICE case cuts against this. Uh, but while the jury right uh, doesn't turn on whether the legislature has formally defined a fact as an element of the crime, I think ICE suggests that facts that are not elements of a crime, like the fact of a prior conviction, or the fact of having committed two separate acts as part of the current charged conduct, which was the particular, one of the particular facts that the judge, trial judge found in the ICE case, uh, can still be decided by the judge without running afoul of the right uh, to trial by jury. In other words, ICE limits Apprendi to mean that a legislature can't get away with pretending that something is not an element of a crime when it really is an element of the crime, uh, but there are still other facts that are not elements of a crime that a judge can decide post-verdict in, in determining this sentence. Another way of looking at this uh, is that the facts at issue in ICE were not facts that the legislature allowed the prosecutor to avoid presenting to the jury, as was the case with the enhanced sentences at issue in Blakely, Booker, and Cunningham. Uh, these facts were not taken away from the jury's consideration in ICE uh, because they were never within the jury's consideration. This is not something that juries have ever decided. 
uh, the background rule is just set, oh, excuse me, and in other states uh, where the background rule is consecutive sentences, juries don't make the decision either. Uh, the background rule is just set as consecutive sentence, and then the judge may order concurrent ones uh, if similar kinds of factors are found. Uh, so the dissent is saying that you can have a background rule of consecutive sentences with the judge lowering the sentence, but you can't have a background rule of concurrent sentences uh, with the judge finding facts to increase uh, the sentence. But the interesting thing here, if, if you think about it, if you forbid Oregon's default concurrent sentencing scheme, then the facts in question are still not going to be decided by the jury. Oregon would either switch to a default rule of consecutive sentences, which is what a lot of other states do, uh, or uh, under which, uh, or they would switch to a system under which uh, the, uh, uh, which would be a, a system of complete judicial discretion, where the judge can just decide whatever it is without, any, without articulating any kind of factual reasons up or down for issuing the particular decision. And both the majority and the dissent agree in this case that that would also be fine. So apparently the only thing that dissent thinks you can't do is have the background rule uh, of uh, concurrent sentences, and the majority here just uh, doesn't agree with that. The next originalist aspect of the majority's opinion comes through in its consideration of the original role of the jury as a bulwark against the state. By measuring the effect of the Oregon statute on the jury's constitutional function as originally conceived, the court again employs an originalist methodology. The court suggests that the jury's role as a bulwark is not undermined here because the legislature's decision to make concurrent sentences the default actually works to the advantage of the criminal defendant. If the rule were reversed, then the burden of proof would be on the defendant to prove that a consecutive sentence is not warranted rather than on the state to prove that a concurrent sentence is warranted. The court does not, uh, does not note this next point, but it's also true that a judge entrusted with determining consecutive or concurrent sentences is in a far better position as a repeat player with prosecutors than as a jury to monitor and deter any inadvertent or intentional charge stacking that prosecutors may engage in. Resting decision-making about concurrent sentences away from judges and giving it to juries could thus strengthen the power of the state vis-a-vis -vis the criminal defendant. While Justice Ginsburg also runs through a series of other less compelling justifications uh, for the majority's decision in ICE, the originalist-flavored arguments uh, that she makes are the better ones. For example, she expresses concern that it would infringe state sovereignty, uh, but that didn't bother her in, uh, in cases that struck down statutes in New Jersey, Arizona, Washington, California, and, of course, the federal sentencing guidelines. Uh, Ginsburg likewise touts uh, promoting proportionate sentences and reducing sentencing disparities as advantages of Oregon's regime, but those things were true of all those other state systems that were shot down previously. Ginsburg also mentions the pro-defendant tendencies of a concurrent sentencing default rule. Cynically, one might then argue that the result here was just driven by a desire to, prefer, to preserve a statutory scheme that favors criminal defendants. Well, okay, except that she's voting against a criminal defendant here and also voting against the amicus brief filed by the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. So I don't think that that uh, cynical view uh, carries the day. Finally, the majority makes a confusing attempt to distinguish ICE from the preceding Apprendi cases on the grounds that those cases involved discrete crimes and ICE did not. In other words, there was just one crime committed in those previous cases, and in the ICE case, you're talking about uh, six charges and two separate criminal incidents. Uh, the paper spells out the many, many problems with that argument, uh, but it's a bit complicated and would take uh, time away that I'd rather uh, spend by turning now to the Melendez-Diaz case. Uh, I would be happy to discuss the discreteness distinction in, in further detail uh, during Q&A if there's any interest in that. Uh, Melendez-Diaz v. Massachusetts also features an interesting division of justices. Uh, in fact, the Apprendi coalition that ruptured in ICE reemerges here with Justice Scalia writing on behalf of Stephen Souter, Thomas, and Ginsburg. Hence, the split first seen in jury trial cases may be migrating to other aspects of Sixth Amendment jurisprudence. 
Although Scalia and Thomas are on the side of an originalist opinion, again here, the Chief Justice and Justices Kennedy and Alito uh, dissented. Scalia's majority opinion is frankly originalist in its approach, so this means that once again a majority of the Court's more conservative members are on the opposite side of an originalist opinion. The claim I make here is not merely that the Melendez-Diaz decision continues the originalist renovation of the Sixth Amendment, uh, as ICE did, although that is true. Uh, In fact, all of the opinions are strikingly originalist in their mode of argument. Uh, Rather, I contend that despite the object lesson of ICE, uh, the Court states the rule of Melendez-Diaz too broadly, too. And so it's created the exact same problem in the Confrontation Clause context that Apprendi created in the jury trial context. And I think we'll see that bear out in future Confrontation Clause, or we could see that bear out in future Confrontation Clause cases. When prosecutors sought to introduce certificates of analysis from the crime lab reporting the weight and identity of the drugs at issue uh, in Melendez-Diaz's trial for cocaine distribution and trafficking, he objected on the ground that Crawford v. Washington's interpretation of the Confrontation Clause required in-court testimony by the lab analysts. Crawford, you may recall, is the 2004 case in which the court held that the Confrontation Clause requires testimonial evidence to to be presented with live witnesses unless the witness is unavailable and a prior opportunity for cross-examination existed. The trial court overruled that objection and admitted the certificates, uh, and the question then framed for the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately uh, was whether the trial court should have construed the certificates of analysis as testimonial affidavits uh, under Crawford, and if so, whether admitting the certificates into evidence violated Melendez-Diaz's right to confront the witnesses against him. The court provides a rationale as simple as it is brief. First, Crawford held affidavits to be testimonial statements. Second, the certificates of analysis at issue here are the functional equivalent of affidavits. And third, the analysts who swore the affidavits are witnesses whom Melendez-Diaz has the right to confront under the Confrontation Clause. Uh, But there are several problems with this little syllogism. First, Crawford never held that affidavits are testimonial statements. Uh, It's surprising that the court would mischaracterize Crawford in the way that it does, but in fact the Crawford court explicitly left open the question of a comprehensive definition of testimonial statements. And by assuming erroneously that Crawford already extended the Confrontation Clause to any person who makes a testimonial statement, the majority leaves a key portion of its reasoning uh, inadequately defended in the Melendez-Diaz case. Second, the court's definition of testimonial statements may be too broad. Uh, For certain, only four members of the court adhere to the full breadth of the rule, uh, as stated in Melendez-Diaz. Although Justice Thomas provides the fifth vote here, he writes separately to note that he would not consider admissible informal statements to require confrontation. Uh, For this reason, Justice Thomas's previous dissent in the 8-1 Hammond v. Indiana case, where he was the only justice who voted to admit evidence that had helped to convict a perpetrator of domestic violence, not one of the single votes from Thomas that you hear people talk about uh, so much, Uh, uh, that case becomes newly relevant. In that opinion, Thomas expresses two reasons why the Confrontation Clause should be limited to formal statements. First, while he embraces uh, Crawford's reference to a Noah Webster definition uh, of of a witness as one who bears testimony, Thomas goes further and says, well, we also have to look at what Noah Webster's definition of testimony is. And his definition of testimony is uh, one who gives a solemn declaration. And so Thomas argues uh, that a testimony can't be informal statements. It has to be something that is a solemn declaration. That's a formal statement. And so in this case, because it's an affidavit, Thomas goes along with the majority. But it's pretty clear, uh, as his vote in Hammond indicated and as uh, a prior vote of his in White v. Illinois indicated, in the case of informal statements given to police, uh, Thomas would admit that evidence as not being a violation of the Confrontation Clause. So even though you have a majority, a 5-4 majority here, uh, it's not one... Uh, that would uh, 
that would necessarily survive in that circumstance. I say not necessarily because it could well be that uh, Justice Sotomayor, uh, and I think she will, uh, provide a fifth vote, a fifth vote to shore up uh, Melendez-Diaz against, uh, against this uh, uh, Justice Thomas's uh, lukewarm support uh, for uh, the decision. The other argument that Justice Thomas makes uh, is that the Sixth Amendment framers were concerned with abuses of the Marion bail and committal statutes in England. And essentially he uses that point to make to, to reach the same conclusion that informal statements should still be admitted uh, and that the Confrontation Clause only prevents uh, formal statements uh, from, from coming in uh, in the absence of a witness. A third problem with the court's simple syllogism, as Justice Kennedy argues in dissent, is that lab analysts who swear out affidavits on simple facts, like the identity of the drug in question, look an awful lot like founding area founding era copyists, and copyists were functionaries who swore to the authenticity of copies of state records provided explicitly for trial purposes. And as Kennedy details, uh, these were routinely admitted at and after the time of the Sixth Amendment's framing without anyone thinking that the Confrontation Clause was implicated. Justice Kennedy further argues that the Confrontation Clause refers to people, not statements, and that it extends only to conventional witnesses with personal knowledge of a defendant's guilt or innocence. That was true of the, uh, the Davis case, the Hammond case, the Crawford case, they were all that kind of conventional witness. So this was the first time uh, that, uh, that the court dealt with kind of an unconventional witness like a lab analyst in this context. The uh, other clauses of the Constitution seem to reinforce this view. The compulsory process clause, for instance, would not seem to define witnesses according to whether they have given a testimonial statement, but rather according to whether they have direct knowledge of uh, the guilt or innocence of, uh, of a defendant. Is there a right to compulsory process to obtain live testimony from someone who gave a worthless statement to the police showing that they had no knowledge of events? I think that would be a stretch. Likewise, the treason clause explicitly refers to, quote, testimony of two witnesses, unquote. So the framers could use the word testimony when they meant that and the word witnesses when they meant that. No extrapolation is required. Uh, And yet uh, the dissent here would, uh, uh, thank you, the dissent here would, extrapolate a definition of testimony from the word witnesses in the Sixth Amendment. One's hard-pressed to imagine a lab analyst sufficing as one of the two requisite witnesses in a treason prosecution precisely because a lab analyst engaging in her official duties would not have witnessed an overt act and thus would not have personal knowledge of the defendant's guilt. But if witness means the same thing in Article 3 as it means in Amendment 6, uh, then Melendez-Diaz's broad formulation of a witness uh, to include anyone who makes a testimonial statement seems overbroad. The court's rule would also exclude dying declarations from being admitted at trial, and dying declarations were routinely admitted uh, at the time of the Sixth Amendment's framing, uh, although the majority admits this inconsistency and seems to uh, forecast carving out an originalist exception to its overly broad uh, rule in Melendez-Diaz at some point down the road. Uh, I'll say uh, a quick word about Briscoe v. Virginia, which uh, is a case in which the court granted certiorari four days after issuing the decision in Melendez-Diaz v. Massachusetts. The the issue in Briscoe v. Virginia uh, is uh, is Virginia's notice and demand statute, which uh, the court in Melendez-Diaz says that simple notice and demand statutes are fine. These are ones that say to the criminal defendant, you either have to raise this confrontation clause objection when the the, uh, prosecution tells you it's going to use this evidence without introducing a witness, or you forfeit the right to object to this at trial. So that kind of simple thing the court has said is fine. Virginia goes a little further than that and essentially says that the defendant has to call the lab analyst as a witness if the defendant wants them to appear. 
and it's not at all clear. In fact, I would argue that a straightforward reading of the language of Melendez-Diaz says that, uh, that there's no dice on that. And so uh, if the court is serious about what it says in Melendez-Diaz, I would expect Briscoe v. Virginia uh, to be, uh, for the Virginia stat- notice and demand statute to be struck down in Briscoe. Uh, let me say a quick word about Daubert, too. I get into this in some detail because it's, it's uh, something of a, of a pet issue of mine. Uh, but the court t- takes a long detour in this case to complain about the quality of, uh, of crime labs in the United States and does this based on a, on a national study that came out early in the year. And it does this, uh, Justice Scalia's opinion does this, even though there is absolutely no uh, indication in the Melendez-Diaz case itself that there was any problem with the lab analyst analysis that was done on the cocaine in the case. Uh, in addition to doing that, uh, he attacks the idea of a reliability standard, which was the old Robert standard that Crawford supplanted. And he talks about why a reliability standard is bad. And he talks about why trusting the judge to be a gatekeeper for reliability is, is a bad idea. The same idea was in Crawford, but we see it spelled out here as well. Well, for anyone who's familiar with, with Daubert, the Supreme Court's decision on, uh, on, admiss- on the standard for admissibility of expert testimony, uh, that case explicitly calls for judges to act as gatekeepers of reliability uh, before expert evidence comes into play. And I think that there's a real tension here because if the court is concerned about the quality of evidence in criminal trials, the court ought to be reinforcing Daubert and preventing junk science from getting into the courtrooms, reinforcing the idea of judges as as gatekeepers of scientific testimony uh, and and the reliability of scientific testimony, uh, including testimony that's offered by the prosecution, and not denigrating this idea of reliability. After all, if, if judges can't be reliable gatekeepers uh, of the admissibility of, uh, of, uh, uh, of, this no, of this testimony that you would think would be very much within their ken, you know, is something, uh, uh, is, is this testimony like that that's an issue in ICE? Is this testimony uh, that you know, should come in or shouldn't come in because of these definitions of testimony and witness and so forth? If courts can't be trusted to do that, which is what Scalia says in Melendez-Diaz, how can we trust them to make all these scientific decisions in the Talbert context? Uh, so I think there's a real tension there. Uh, that, that is unfortunate and was completely unnecessary for deciding the case. By discarding Roberts in favor of Crawford, the Rehnquist Court sparked the recognition of a broad confrontation right because Crawford involved the formal testimony of a conventional witness, the victim, with firsthand knowledge of the defendant's guilt. The possibility remained that the court would later confine Crawford's absolute bar on admissibility to similar testimonial statements, i.e. formal statements of conventional witnesses with personal knowledge. Instead, the Roberts Court's Melendez-Diaz decision dramatically expands the scope of a defendant's right to be confronted uh, with adverse witnesses uh, by construing the confrontation right to extend to crime lab analysts and their affidavits. Although the reasoning behind the broad Melendez-Diaz rule may prove a bridge too far, even a less ambitious originalism would have generated the same result in the case, and that's essentially what we see from Thomas's concurrence in the case. Uh, the court's grant of cert in Briscoe v. Virginia leaves the door slightly ajar, but at a minimum, Melendez-Diaz confirms Crawford's thorough renovation of the Confrontation Clause uh, along originalist lines. ICE and Melendez-Diaz promised to determine whether the Roberts Court would validate the dramatic shifts in Sixth Amendment jurisprudence made during the latter years of the Rehnquist Court, and they did. Standing alone, Melendez-Diaz represents the most significant Sixth Amendment development for criminal defendants in many terms. One criminal defense attorney says it's the greatest case for criminal defendants since Miranda. Uh, and whether or not we accept that dramatic characterization of the case or not, I do think it, it's going to change the terms. Uh, it's going to give criminal defendants something they didn't have before. By standing on their confrontation rights, they'll presumably be able to extract concessions from prosecutors, at least in close cases. 
uh, and, in, and, in, and in jurisdictions that are overrun with a number of these cases, criminal defendants can force uh, these issues to go to trial, uh, and, and it really does change the dynamic between prosecutors and criminal defendants uh, in a significant way. Uh, but, I, uh, but I think the overall point is that Melendez-Diaz uh, is a little too broadly stated and that the court's going to have to carve that back just as it had to carve back Apprendi's overly broad statement or overly broad rule in ICE. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Our second speaker teaches uh, criminal law at Washington and Lee University. Before that, he taught law at William and Mary, and before that, he taught law for many years at the University of Utah, where he was co-director of the Utah Criminal Justice Center. Before moving into academia, he served for several years in the district attorney's office uh, in San Diego, and he earned his undergraduate degree at the University of Southern California and his law degree from Stanford. We at Cato were proud that uh, he accepted our invitation a few years ago to become one of Cato's adjunct scholars, and in that capacity, he recently testified before the House Judiciary Committee on uh, how to approach the problem of inadequate uh, funding for indigent defense counsel. Would you please welcome Professor Eric Luna? Thank you very much, Tim, for that uh, uh, very kind introduction. Um, I want to thank uh, Roger and Ilya and Tim and their colleagues um, for inviting me to participate today in uh, such a wonderful event. Uh, the Supreme Court's most recent uh, term included several Fourth Amendment decisions of uh, popular and academic interest and with some potential uh, jurisprudential import. Um, each is likely to receive some extended discussion in uh, the scholarship, uh, but in my chapter in the uh, Cato uh, Supreme Court Review, I spent the bulk of my time analyzing what would seem to be the most banal of all Fourth Amendment cases, um, a decision in Arizona versus Johnson, um, which uh, arguably was preordained um, and uh, was a very minor extension, at least uh, from a, uh, the view of an, of an airplane looking down on the stop and frisk doctrine first articulated by the Supreme Court more than 40 years ago. The fact pattern in Johnson goes something like this. Um, in April of 2002, a, uh, members of the Arizona's gang task force were on patrol in an unmarked vehicle west of Tucson um, in an area associated with the Crip Street Gang. The officers pulled over uh, an automobile on a major thoroughfare after a license plate check revealed a civil, um, but not criminal, uh, insurance violation uh, that would have had no uh, penal repercussions. The officers later testified that they had no reason to believe that um, anyone was in the vehicle was involved in criminal activity. No crimes had been re reported nearby, um, and, the and the agents had no idea where the car had been or where, in fact, it was going. One of the officers trained her attention on the backseat passenger, a young black man named Lemon Johnson. Among other things, the officer found it somewhat suspicious that Johnson had stared at law enforcement agents while they approached the car, uh, as well as the fact that Johnson was wearing all blue clothing. Now, although the officer testified that um, she had no reason to believe that Johnson was involved in criminal activity and described him as being cooperative throughout the, uh, their interaction, she still believed that Johnson could be a gang member and wanted to, quote-unquote, uh, gather intelligence about the gang he might be in, uh, a goal that she readily admitted was wholly unrelated to the very reason for the traffic stop to begin with. After ordering Johnson out of the car, the officer directed uh, him to turn around and proceeded to pat him down. And during that frisk, the officer found a gun near Johnson's waist, and a subsequent search revealed marijuana. Now, all told, these facts uh, in this case are, are pretty unremarkable, um, as, the courts, as is the uh, court's unanimous opinion 
upholding um, the stop and frisk, at least in light of recent precedents. What I would like to suggest here um, is that this case, Arizona versus Johnson, represents uh, the remarkable proposition that police may frisk a presumptively indivi uh, innocent individual without any uh, suspicion of crime. And more generally, it epitomizes a, a more general uh, phenomenon, uh, what we might call a doctrinal creep and crawl, in constitutional criminal procedure and in Fourth Amendment doctrine. Now, the demands placed on law enforcement are uh, relentless. There's no doubt about that, um, as is the widely held belief that the Constitution uh, inordinately uh, interferes with law enforcement efforts to prevent, to detect, uh, and to solve crimes. Uh, law enforcement presses the judiciary for change, as we might expect, um, given the difficult duties that they, uh, they have and the <coughs> adversarial nature of their profession. The courts then sometimes acquiesce to these demands uh, by recognizing limited exceptions to the exclusionary rule or to the requirement of probable cause uh, or a warrant. Over time, however, the courts can be pressed to push and to extend an, an exception, sometimes in small increments, uh, each case founded upon the last until the point that the rationale for the original justification, the rationale or original justification for the, uh, the original opinion, uh, no longer um, could support the doctrine. A prime example of this is the, uh, the case that served as the linchpin or the, or the uh, doctrinal underpinning um, of Johnson versus Arizona and the uh, seminal case in stop and frisk jurisprudence, the court's 1968 decision in Terry versus Ohio. In an opinion by uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren, the Terry court concluded um, that law enforcement may briefly detain an individual for investigatory purposes, um, what has come to be known as a Terry stop, um, if it has a reasonable suspicion that that individual has or is involved in committing a crime. If law enforcement then has a reasonable suspicion that the detainee is presently armed and dangerous, it may conduct a limited search of the outer clothing of the, uh, outer clothing of the individual for weapons, uh, what has now been uh, denominated as a pat-down or a frisk. Although the, the idea of a stop and frisk uh, under Terry uh, is taken as a given today, um, Terry was, and uh, to a certain extent still is, a controversial decision. After all, law enforcement is allowed to, uh, to search and to seize an individual uh, without a warrant, and more importantly, without probable cause. Uh, the Terry decision itself recognized that this was um, quite an undertaking, or quite a power by law enforcement. Um, the frisk in particular, quote, uh, constituted a serious intrusion upon cherished personal security, and it must surely be an annoying, frightening, and perhaps humiliating experience, unquote. In order to conduct a stop, uh, law enforcement had to point to specific articulable facts um, that would justify a reasonable officer in believing that a crime has been or was about to be committed. Uh, if nothing in the initial stages of that interaction um, in any well dispelled uh, his or her belief that the officer uh, could then um, uh, use the power of a frisk to see whether or not that individual uh, was armed and dangerous. Now, a few points deserve to be mentioned here about Terry. Uh, First, although uh, it is less than probable cause, as articulated in, uh, in the opinion, the level of proof required, um, what has come to be known as reasonable suspicion, was explicitly tied to probable cause and its core notion of individualized suspicion, that uh, uh, searches and seizures cannot be premised on gut feelings or unparticularized hunches. Second, the relevant suspicion uh, must be of criminal behavior, um, that in Terry's words, criminal activity is afoot. So you have to have criminal activity. Third, the officer's actions must not only be justified at the inception, 
um, but they must be related in scope to the circumstances which justified the interference in the first place. So you might assume, for instance, that the officer's inquiries during a stop should relate to the reason why the citizen was detained to begin with. And finally, a frisk for weapons was predicated upon a stop uh, based on reasonable suspicion of crime. And this was emphasized by Justice John Marshall uh, Harlan um, in his Terry concurrence. Quote, any person, including a policeman, is at liberty to avoid a person he considers dangerous. A citizen need not submit to a frisk for the questioner's protection, and any power to search does not uh, originate from an officer's right to disarm to frisk for his own protection, unquote. Instead, the, the frisk is premised uh, upon the belief that criminal activity is, is uh, afoot um, and the officer's prerogative to prevent and investigate serious crime. Against this background, you might wonder, how do we get to Arizona versus Johnson, um, a seemingly limited decision in Terry, um, and how it could be the precursor of a quite uh, wide-ranging uh, doctrine where a passenger can be ordered out of a car and frisked without any belief that he is in any way involved in crime. And the answer, I believe, as I suggested the introduction, um, is the constant pressure to water down individual rights, uh, which in turn leads the court to adopt new new deviations and over time to remove any of the limitations that existed in the original decision. The lone dissenter in Terry, um, Justice uh, William O. Douglas, forewarned of hydraulic pressures of crime uh, and, and law enforcement to dilute individual rights in favor of law enforcement prerogatives. And time has shown that Douglas was prescient, uh, as the court has continually deferred to government claims under the Terry rubric, expanded the police authority with each of its decisions, and moving further and further away from the original justifications for Terry to begin with. Now, uh, in my published uh, contribution uh, to the uh, Cato Supreme Court Review, I spend most of my time talking about um, the, the deviations from the original opinion um, that now license this uh, de facto power to uh, stop and frisk at will. Um, one overarching uh, the, uh, thematic uh, deviation is the dilution of the Fourth Amendment standard of proof. Um, subsequent to Terry, the Supreme Court espoused this uh, multi-factor, all things considered, totality of the circumstances test for probable cause and also for reasonable suspicion, a test which has provided uh, no firm structure and, and practice has transformed the Fourth Amendment standard, uh, standard of proof into uh, no real uh, standard at all. Today, reasonable suspicion can be provided by a series of innocuous details collectively amounting to lawful activity subject to innocent explanation so long as law enforcement could conceivably infer criminal activity was afoot. It can be suspicious, as was true in the court's uh, 2002 decision in Arvizu, when a driver does not look over at a patrol car based on the officer's experience that most people look over and give him a friendly wave. With this low threshold, uh, entire categories of information um, may not only be relevant, but can be dispositive in uh, Terry analysis. The phrase high crime area uh, has become talismanic uh, for law enforcement, where its mere incantation at a suppression hearing means that that evidence is going to be admitted, uh, regardless of whether, in fact, um, it should be admitted. The lower courts have also participated in this. It's not just the Supreme Court. Um, uh, they have created virtual per se rules for frisks when law enforcement is investigating particular classes of crimes or profiles of uh, individuals. If the purported crime involves drugs or if the individual is allegedly involved in gang activity, um, they almost always defer to law enforcement. Uh, no empirical evidence is ever offered. 
Uh, at most, an officer will testify that, quote, in his or her experience, alleged drug offenders and gang members are normally expected to be carrying firearms. Indeed, there is today what can be called, and has been called, a drug exception to the Constitution and to the Fourth Amendment in particular. And it's epitomized by the judiciary's tacit approval of something that has been going on for several decades, the drug courier profile, a set of traits and behaviors that are supposedly associated with individuals trafficking in drugs. Over time and across cases, um, law enforcement has used opposing characteristics or cited to the entire universe of potential facts uh, to justify a stop and frisk. So in one case, a person appeared too nervous. In another case, a person appeared too calm. Uh, at airports, law enforcement might highlight the fact that the defendant was one of the first to deplane. But in a different case, um, the alleged suspicious behavior could be deplaning last or deplaning in the middle. Um, other forms of profiling have become popular, um, and that includes the gang member profile, um, which uh, has such broad criteria, very much like the, the drug courier profile, as wearing particular colors, having tattoos, or coming from particular places. The elasticity of these profiles, uh, particularly when coupled with the notion of high crime area, uh, has permitted a different and far more troubling type of profile. The use of race or ethnicity to determine those individuals to be investigated or otherwise placed under suspicion. Uh, this phenomenon, as everybody knows, is called racial profiling, uh, but it is rarely overt in Terry analysis. Instead, it typically occurs under the pretext of a traffic stop uh, pursuant to our all-encompassing vehicular codes. Um, historically, automobile uh, searches were supposed to be based on probable cause, and that's a doctrine that had not been deviated uh, from until 1975, when the Supreme Court held um, that law enforcement could stop a vehicle based on reasonable suspicion that it contained illegal aliens. Now, the opinion was problematic on a number of fronts, um, but at least it involved searches and seizures premised on suspicion of crime, namely that um, people were smuggling illegal aliens. But the ensuing decisions after 1975 uh, would dispense altogether with the justification of criminal law and its enforcement, um, making it clear that Terry, uh, the framework established in Terry, would apply to all uh, violations, including civil traffic violations. Today, moving and equipment violations offer ready-made pretext for arbitrary and discriminatory policing. Um, you need to simply ask uh, any defense attorney or even sometimes police officers who will admit uh, their use of traffic codes as a pretext. They touch every aspect of the vehicle and their operation, um, and they employ ambiguous language, my favorite being uh, driving away too uh, at a, an unreasonable speed, and of course the question is unreasonable to whom. As a practical matter, law enforcement needs only follow a car for a, um, a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, uh, blocks, three blocks is usually the rule, um, and they will find something there, some reason to pull that individual over. Um, so you have the combination of an all-encompassing vehicle code, um, you have a Terry application to civil uh, traffic stops, and you have some, uh, the possibility of some uh, pretty troubling rulings. Uh, let me just briefly mention them, I know my time is short. In 1977, Pennsylvania versus Mims, the court said that uh, you can order a driver out of the out of his or her car, uh, even though you do not have probable cause that a crime has been committed, um, and even though you do not believe that they actually pose or there's no information that they pose a threat to public safety. Uh, two decades later, the same thing happened in a case called Maryland versus Wilson, but now it was uh, applied to the presumptively innocent individual, the passenger. 
Um, a year before uh, before uh, uh, Wilson was decided, the Supreme Court uh, uh, issued its case in Wren versus U.S., a unanimous uh, opinion by the Supreme Court that said uh, that we will not look into the subjective motivations of officers. So if they conduct a stop and that stop was at least supposedly based on a traffic violation, the fact that they were actually looking for drugs or other types of crime is irrelevant, and sometimes it can be uh, blatant, as was the case in Johnson. Um, so let me quickly uh, revert back to Johnson and, and, and talk about that, and we'll call it um, – we'll, we'll uh, let uh, Oren take the stage, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the Fourth Amendment cases. Um, in this case, the officer focused on Lemon Johnson admitted that she was, uh, she was looking for gang intelligence. Um, she purportedly found it um, uh, suspicious that he watched the officers approach the car um, from the back of the, uh, of the vehicle. But, of course, Arvizu, if he hadn't looked at her, that would have been suspicious too. Um, they said that, uh, that she, he was wearing uh, blue, and that was an indicia of his involvement um, in the Crip Street Gang. Oddly enough, the driver was wearing red, which is the color of the arch enemies of the uh, Crips, the Bloods. Um, more importantly, the officer admitted that she did not suspect Johnson of criminal activity or even a criminal infraction. He had been cooperative throughout their interaction, and he made no sudden or furtive movements before he was frisked. But after Johnson, a frisk under these circumstances is perfectly permissible. And it stands for the proposition that an individual who has done nothing wrong and may have been completely cooperative can be searched without any suspicion of wrongdoing based on innocuous facts like the color of their clothes. Now, hopefully this doesn't lead to a, a, an extension of, of, the, of, this, of this rule, um, a uh, suspicionless frisk doctrine, as we might call it. Uh, maybe the court will find this extension unreasonable. Maybe they'll try to tether um, the doctrine um, that has traveled so far from its original theoretical moorings. Um, but given the developments in uh, stop-and-frisk law and the unanimous opinion in Arizona versus Johnson, I am not particularly optimistic. Again, thank you for having me today, um, and I look forward to, uh, to talking with Oren and, and, uh, and Mark uh, and answering any questions you might have during the Q&A session. Thanks a lot, Eric. Um, if you've had a chance to peruse the latest issue of the Cato Supreme Court Review, you would have noticed that there's three articles in the latest issue on the criminal law, one by Mark Chenoweth, one by Eric Luna. The third article uh, in this issue is authored by Professor uh, Michael O'Neill, who teaches law at George Mason University. Uh, Professor O'Neill uh, could not make it to our event today, but we're very delighted that um, Professor Oren Kerr accepted our invitation to come here and share his insights on uh, the key cases that came before uh, the Supreme Court last term. Professor Kerr teaches criminal law over at uh, George Washington University. He's either the author or co-author of several textbooks on criminal procedure and computer crime law, and he's a prolific writer from publishing uh, scholarly articles in the top law journals all the way to posting daily blog posts over at the popular uh, Volokh Conspiracy website. Uh, before entering academia, he served in the Department of Justice, and he also clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy on uh, the Supreme Court. And he had a very interesting summer. Uh, he was uh, appointed uh, and served as special counsel to Senator John Cornyn, the Republican senator from Texas, to prepare the senator and the other members of the Senate Judiciary Committee on the nomination of uh, Sonia Sotomayor. So would you please welcome Professor Oren Kerr. Uh, 
Uh, th thank you, Tim, and, and thank you, uh, Roger and Ilya, as well, for the invitation. I, f I feel I do get the, the best of all possible worlds. I get, I get to talk to you all without having to write a paper for an academic. It doesn't get any better than that. Um, I wanted to uh, think about the issues of the Fourth Amendment from a broader lens and then focus on some of the cases over the last year or two that are, uh, get the most attention uh, among uh, both uh, scholarly commentators and the, and the public. And, and I want to focus on this question by trying to imagine what commentators might say 50 years from now, what historians might say 50 years from now about the Fourth Amendment decisions that we've seen over the past few years. Uh, kind of historically speaking, where are we in the development uh, of the Fourth Amendment? And in order to do that, I need to first tell you what I think the Fourth Amendment means to the justices of the Supreme Court today, and also what I think it's meant over time. So here's a very short uh, uh, version of that. Uh, I think what the, the Fourth Amendment means today, uh, in terms of how the justices of the current Supreme Court treat it, uh, is it's a tool by which generalist judges try to create and impose reasonable restrictions on police practices through judicially created and enforced rules. Uh, now, when you first hear that, you might think, well, how, how can they do that? Generalist judges uh, probably don't have a lot of experience with the police. Uh, uh, as you can imagine, if you are uh, arrested frequently by the police, you have a lot of face-to-face -face contact with the police. Uh, doesn't uh, go well if you're interested in then being a Supreme Court justice. Uh, so, so most of the justices, you know, maybe they've watched a lot of, of Law and Order, uh, which is good. That maybe that's where they're getting their perspectives from. Or uh, some of them have been uh, have some defense, criminal defense work. Uh, several have been uh, prosecutors. Uh, maybe that's their experience. Uh, but the modern approach to the Fourth Amendment, which I think really goes back to the 1960s, is this notion that the justices will try to create the rules that all the police in the United States follow. And we're talking. Uh, uh, Trying to count the number of police officers in the U.S. is kind of tricky, but we're talking around a million people who have some sort of power uh, uh, to enforce the law as, as police officers uh, and, and law enforcement agents. Uh, so uh, how did we get here? Well, the Fourth Amendment really wasn't designed to deal with this problem because the Fourth Amendment was uh, written in an area, at a time before professional police. Uh, as of the 18th century, uh, the problems that uh, the framers of the Constitution were thinking of when they enacted the Fourth Amendment was that of the king's officials who could obtain general warrants that would allow them to go anywhere and enforce uh, any law. Uh, these general warrants were not specific as to the place they could go, the crime they could be looking for, the evidence they could be looking for. And uh, there was a, a, a lot of res resistance to that, both uh, in England uh, and in the colonies. So the Fourth Amendment was designed to stop this abuse of the general warrant. Uh, it then expands and becomes a broader tool uh, for uh, enforcing reasonable police practices, really in a series of cases that start, say, in the 1930s through the 1960s, uh, the key case probably being uh, MAP versus Ohio, which adopts the exclusionary rule for the states. Uh, and uh, before that, Wolf versus Colorado in the late 1940s that says for the first time that the Fourth Amendment does apply to state officers. Uh, before then, the Fourth Amendment only applied to federal officers. Before the 1920s, there kind of were no federal officers. Uh, the Prohibition era is what changes that. Uh, so the Fourth Amendment that really didn't mean a whole lot until around the 1920s starts to play an extraordinary role uh, in American life, regulating a lot of people with a lot of police interactions. Uh, this is a source of tremendous frustration 
for those of us that are very interested in Fourth Amendment history, because there's just not a lot of history. Uh, if you go back and look at the early cases on the Fourth Amendment, the first uh, Supreme Court cases that start to discuss it are really in the 1870s, uh, and there really aren't any lower court cases that discuss it in much depth either, uh, because there's no appeal from convictions. Uh, uh, until the 1880s in the federal system. So there's not a lot of history here. In the 1950s and 60s, the Supreme Court uh, decides a series of cases which take on this role of imposing reasonable police practices. And, and in the 1960s, really create the basic building blocks of Fourth Amendment law, uh, drawn from this history of imposing general warrants. But, but where the real action is, is in the warrantless searches and seizures that the court uh, allows, some of which are, are rooted in history. Uh, the search incident to arrest doctrine is, is one of them. Uh, and others of which are more modern creations. For example, the special needs exception, which says if the government is acting in a non-law enforcement capacity, they have slightly different and really generally lower standards uh, that they can follow in their searches and seizures, uh, a rule that's very important, for example, in the terrorism context, also important uh, anytime you have uh, government employment searches or school searches, public school searches, uh, fact patterns that happen a lot. Uh, so that's how the law got to where we are. Fifty years from now, what will they say about the state of the law uh, today, the last two or three years? Uh, sadly, I think they'll say uh, it's pretty quiet. Uh, and I say sadly because as a Fourth Amendment scholar, you want the area that you're studying to be an area of great uh, uh, ferment and tension uh, and dynamic action, because that means there's a lot to write about. Uh, and for those of us that study Fourth Amendment law, we're, we're kind of forced to look at cases which might someday go a particular direction, and then we say, well, there's language in there that might go in that direction, but it hasn't happened yet, so stay tuned. We're kind of forced to say that uh, a lot. Um, and if you look at the cases in the last two or three years, I think th those they're particularly good examples of case-by-case -case decision making where the decisions... Uh, based on the facts are quite reasonable. The language used could point in pretty troubling directions, but we're really not yet at a point where we can say those, uh, that language will actually head in the direction that we're particularly worried about. So um, uh, Eric pointed out some of the concerns about the existing law and some of the recent cases. I think if you look at the facts of those cases, uh, a slightly different picture emerges. So I want to think about some of the facts of the cases uh, and, and contrast that with the holdings, but just think about whether the result was a reasonable one. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to want to start with the cases on the scope of the exclusionary rule. So uh, as, uh, in the last couple of years, the Supreme Court has handed down a series of cases uh, narrowing the scope of the exclusionary rule through the good faith exception. The court uses this balancing approach in which they look at the role of suppression in that particular context, contrast that uh, with the need to enforce the constitutional rules uh, and, 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 the, and the, the, the public safety interest involved in, in suppressing evidence and not having criminal convictions, and tries to balance the, the deterrence interest against the public safety interest. Uh, on one hand, you can look at those cases and say uh, the Supreme Court is gutting the exclusionary rule. Uh, the exclusionary rule is almost dead, uh, and, and really this is a very significant time in Fourth Amendment law. But I think if you look at the, at the facts, a different picture emerges, and I want to pick up uh, two cases where I think that's particularly clear. Um, one, Hudson versus Michigan, a case from 2006, on whether the exclusionary rule applies to what's known as knock and announce violations. Uh, what that means is the police are executing a warrant. They're supposed to knock, announce that they're the police, wait a window of time, and then go in if nobody answers to give the homeowner an opportunity to open the door so the police don't then knock it down. 
Hudson versus Michigan uh, answered the question of whether the, the exclusionary rule applies to a knock-and-announce violation. Knock-and-announce, that rule had been a common law rule, not even part of the Fourth Amendment, not formally recognized as part of the Fourth Amendment uh, until the 1990s. And in Hudson versus Michigan, the Supreme Court says the exclusionary rule does not apply to knock-and-announce violations. There's lots of language in there that is, is, uh, could be construed pretty broadly, but if you look just at the facts, uh, what happened in Hudson versus Michigan was there was a claim that the uh, knock-and-announce rule had been violated. It's quite difficult to know if the knock-and-announce rule has been violated in terms of who the witnesses are, who can testify as to whether there was a knock on the door. Officers generally will say yes. The homeowner might say no. Maybe the homeowner didn't hear exactly how much time passed before the uh, uh, police barged in. Was it 10 seconds? Was it 15 seconds? Was it 5 seconds? It's very hard to actually adjudicate that question. It was uncertain in Hudson versus Michigan if the knock-and-announce rule had actually been violated. The court assumed it was and then said, even if it's been violated, there's no suppression for that. Whatever you think of the language in the opinion, I think that result makes sense in light of the broad preference the Supreme Court has said for obtaining warrants. So the Supreme Court has uh, repeatedly tried to create rules that encourage police officers to obtain warrants, uh, the idea being that if the police have a, an easier time, if they obtain a warrant, they'll be more likely to get a warrant. Therefore, judges will be able to review the scope of searches before they occur and not try to just have to reconstruct things with a warrantless search and seizure. If you had an exclusionary rule for knock-and-announce violations, that would actually substantially impact and a police officer's vision of, uh, of sense of cost and benefits of getting a warrant. Because suddenly complying with that knock-and-announce violation the moment they're executing the warrant is potentially a source for suppression. And the knock-and-announce knock rule does not apply to warrantless searches or seizures. So I think the idea of not having suppression, of recognizing that that use of an exclusionary rule in that setting would have such a grand impact and also would not clearly have a cause and effect relationship with the evidence obtained, also connecting to the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine in Fourth Amendment law, uh, I think an exclusionary rule there would have actually been uh, a, a substantial shift, would have actually changed uh, the incentives police officers would face. So... Again, whatever you think of the language, I think the result is actually fits reasonably well in, in, the, in the scope of then existing doctrine. Same thing with Herring versus United States, the case uh, that also has even more, uh, tr I think, troubling language, uh, language suggesting a, a real shift in the scope of the exclusionary rule. Uh, in Herring versus United States, the police officer ex uh, uh, believes, is told, that there's a warrant out for Herring's arrest. He then arrests Herring. Turns out, that the, he had been told bad information. There had been a warrant out for Herring's arrest, but it had been recalled. So the question is whether the good faith exception applies, again, assuming there was a Fourth Amendment violation. I think the, and the court then concludes the good faith exception applies to this ne uh, 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 merely negligent error of the police in having a database that had the wrong information. Uh, I think the, the, a, a key thing to, to keep in mind in the Herring case is that when there's a negligent error in a police database, the officer who actually conducts the arrest, because he honestly believes that there is, in fact, uh, a warrant out for that suspect's arrest, is himself going to have probable cause to believe that the person committed a crime. If a police officer is told there's a warrant out for that person's arrest, that, it's not clear whether that in itself creates probable cause, but it very well might individually create probable cause to make that arrest. 
So you could look at the herring situation and say, well, you could solve that problem in two different ways, in ways that generate almost exactly the same result. You could say the good faith exception doesn't apply, and then you get all that language about maybe the Supreme Court gutting the exclusionary rule. Or you could say an individual who is told by another police officer that there's a warrant out for a person's arrest then has probable cause to arrest that person. Uh, same, same result, two different, two different ways. Uh, and, and I think you can look at the other uh, Supreme Court cases from last term in a, in a similar lens. Uh, Eric talked about Arizona versus Johnson uh, and this notion of the police approaching somebody who the police do not think is committing a crime but may be dangerous to them. Uh, you know, I think to the justices that comes off as a decision about whether the police can frisk somebody who the officer reasonably thinks might shoot them, uh, to which the justices say, yeah. Yeah, they, they can do that. We don't want officers to be worried about uh, thinking that somebody might actually have a gun, might have a knife, might have a, a weapon, uh, but not feeling that they can frisk the person in that situation until they somehow connect that person to a crime. Uh, I, I think uh, just on a straight public safety rationale, that's the kind of thing where just a common sense, uh, it's a slight extension of the cases, it's implicit in some of the cases, uh, but if you just look at those facts and say, should the officer be allowed to check if the person has a gun, uh, I think then the decision uh, looks much more consistent with pre-existing law. Uh, uh, as well, Arizona versus Gantt, a case which uh, actually turned uh, uh, pretty significantly uh, in the area of the search incident to arrest exception. This is the case on whether uh, the police can uh, arrest somebody for a driving violation and then search the car, even if they have no connection, no reason to believe that there's evidence relating to the arrest inside the car. Uh, most circuits had said that was allowed. The Supreme Court had come pretty close to saying that in the Thornton case in 2004. Arizona versus Gantt changes direction and says, no, that's no longer permitted. Um, does that mean there's a significant extension of the Fourth Amendment? Well, in some of the language, it does seem that way. Practically speaking, it's a tremendously significant case. At the same time, if you look at the facts, once again, I think you say, well, look at those facts. There's no reason that the officer arrests the person, puts him in the back of the squad car. Why search the car? Why search the car? You can come up with, you know, the, the officer's looking for a gun, the officer's looking for drugs, uh, but it doesn't have any connection to the actual reason of the arrest. So while it's a significant change in Fourth Amendment law in a practical sense, there are a lot of these uh, 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 fact patterns, a lot like that of Arizona versus Gantt. Uh, from the overall uh, di sort of direction of Fourth Amendment law, I think it really is uh, a narrow case-by-case -case kind of uh, uh, answer to a very specific problem involving automobile arrests. Uh, so, so in terms of what uh, somebody might think 50 years from now about the direction of Fourth Amendment law, I think this would be considered a pretty quiet time with a lot of very specific case-by-case -case sort of uh, uh, decisions. Uh, the big variable, of course, and, and, and here my crystal ball unfortunately fails, is, is what will happen in the future. Um, the interesting change is now, of course, we have a new justice. Uh, we no longer have Justice Souter on the court. We now have Justice Sotomayor. Uh, and one big question is how much of a difference will that make? Uh, and, and as best we can tell, we, of course, don't, don't know, but as best we can tell, um, not much of a difference. Uh, it, it, it's Justice Souter... Uh, was, generally speaking, a reliable vote on the divided cases for the uh, pro-defendant, uh, uh, you know, liberal side, if you want to put it, put it that way. Um, uh, and probably Justice Sotomayor will be similar. 
at the same time, Justice Souter had his moments where he um, somewhat unexpectedly became the fifth vote in favor of the government, uh, the most dramatic and, and important case being at Atwater versus City of Laga Vista, a case saying that you can arrest somebody for a very minor non-jailable offense. Uh, and I think similarly we'll see uh, something like that from Justice Sotomayor, uh, herself a former Manhattan assistant district attorney, uh, a former trial judge, uh, and somebody whose record does not suggest uh, a, a strong ideological direction in her lower court cases in the criminal procedure area generally or the Fourth Amendment specifically. So probably uh, uh, the status quo will continue, but of course the addition of a new justice can always alter the dynamics in ways you just can't predict uh, based on a, 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 a justice's lower court record or, or a pre-confirmation record. So, so we will have to see. Uh, sorry my crystal ball is broken, but that's uh, as best I could do. Uh, thanks so much. Look forward to your questions. Okay, we're going to have a very brief uh, second round where the panelists are going to have an opportunity to respond to what the other has said. Mark? Well, I thought maybe I'd ask each of you a question. And my question for Eric, uh, the Davis decision, uh, which came between uh, the Crawford decision and, uh, and the uh, Melendez-Diaz decision, uh, indicated that the confrontation clause is not implicated when the primary purpose of the police is law enforcement, but it is implicated uh, when the primary purpose of the police slides into gathering evidence that may be used at trial, uh, which sounded to me like it might be the same sort of problematic, uh, <laughs> unhelpful test that uh, exists in the Fourth Amendment area. I, I don't know if you're familiar with, mm-hmm. with that or if you have a reaction to that. I, I, it's, to me, it seems it's, it's a little bit of a wordplay. Um, and I, I am, have to admit I'm not an evidence scholar, not a, a confrontation clause, um, uh, an author in that area. Um, but uh, when I saw the case, this past case with the confrontation clause, uh, I started wondering, as a practical matter, um, whether uh, Justice Scalia or any of the other justices had spent any time actually uh, dealing with labs um, or dealing with um, with evidence. Um, the backlog there is enormous, and the idea that um, cases are um, that somehow we're going to have some solution. I think the sol- proposed solution was something like having a supervisor uh, testify. Um, I don't know why that necessarily solves the problem that, that, that uh, Scalia has and, and his colleagues have presented. Um, but in, in a way, you could say both Sixth Amendment cases, um, the, and, and maybe for good reasons, because, again, the, the, the Confrontation Clause arguments, um, I can understand the Crawford argument, and I can support it. Uh, the same thing with regards to Booker-Blakely stemming back to Apprendi. Um, but the, it's almost to a certain extent like they didn't think out what might happen in five years. And this case seems to me to be a perfect example that in the coming years we'll see uh, uh, some repercussions that I don't know that the court, um, or you almost have to throw it to to someone who clerk like Oren, uh, I don't know that they fully thought it out as to what they're going to see in a few years. Do you want to put another point on the table, Eric? Oh, sure. I I, I enjoyed, um, as always, uh, Oren is uh, one of the leading scholars in the Fourth Amendment area. And I enjoyed his comments. I think what my, my question, first thing about the, the response that, that the Supreme Court justices had that they shouldn't have to, and I think it's actually drawn to a certain extent from uh, one of Harlan's, it might have been Harlan's uh, um, concurrence about that they shouldn't, an officer shouldn't have to ask a question and expect the response is going to be um, a bullet. I understand that argument. Um, and I understand why the, um, the justices might feel that way. My concern, and the concern with this particular case in Johnson, is the predicate. Um, what was the basis to believe that this individual actually was packing heat? 
um, well, he, he, had, he wore blue. And um, he was in a, um, not in a high, high uh, crime area or in a gang-related area. He was east of that area. And um, he had a, there was a police scanner in the car. Um, I don't know how that leads, necessarily leads as a matter of logic, to this guy is in fact packing heat and should be frisked. So I, that's, that's, it's not that I, I think the court was wrong to be concerned about officer safety. I'm just a little bit concerned about what will provide the basis for that. Um, as for the, the Herring uh, case, what I find interesting is how the court vacillates back and forth between the twin, and I actually think there are three rationales for the exclusionary rule. One is the idea of deterrence. The other is this concern about uh, the Supreme Court and putting its imprimatur on, on bad behavior by police. And the third, which rarely gets mentioned, is the notion of individual rights, which seems to me to be, um, should be important, um, that when there's a right, there's a remedy. Um, and what you see is the court will talk about uh, deterrence uh, when it, like in Herring and in previous cases um, when it leads to a result, surprisingly, uh, in favor of law enforcement. Um, then it will talk about individual rights uh, when it deals with standing, um, which is a, whether or not an individual can raise a particular claim. Uh, and that also leads to that defendant losing the case. And so I wonder sometimes whether some outcome-based uh, jurisprudence is going on. And then the last point with, with, with Herring um, is I think Herring actually represents what I was concerned about, this, this slight deviations, because you've got to remember the, the, the first case, Leon, was, was the argument was that you cannot deter law enforcement for errors made by the judiciary. Uh, a little while later, they said, well, there was a, a statute that allowed this, and um, you can't deter law enforcement for errors made by lawmakers. Well, now we have hearing where you can't uh, deter law enforcement for errors made by law enforcement. And I don't, I don't see how that you can see how each decision serves as the first line in the next decision, but you look at the very beginning, and it doesn't justify the conclusion that the court just raised, uh, at least in, in my mind. Uh, Great. Uh, just to, to ask some questions back to, to Eric. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious, Eric, what you make of the cases that the Supreme Court hands down that um, cut the other direction. So Arizona versus Gantt, uh, one prominent uh, example. Mm -hmm. uh, Georgia versus Randolph comes to mind um, from, from two terms ago. Uh, the court's cases seem – there, there are definitely decisions uh, that, that the police are, are, are happy with. Uh, but there are a couple others that cut back, and, and they can be pretty significant, I think, like, like the Gantt case. Right. Um, how, how does that factor into your overall sense of th this case-by-case -case development being sort of one-sided? Sure. And, 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 I, and, I, and I have to admit, I'm not saying it's one-sided. I've, I've taken – I've cherry-picked some cases, obviously, um, that I, I find to be uh, problematic. Um, Gantt – to me, um, and you, all you have to do is look at um, the, uh, a previous decision called Thornton, um, where Justice Scalia um, let everybody know, I think this doctrine is ridiculous. Um, the guy is, is handcuffed and he's in the back of a, uh, of a police cruiser, and you're concerned about officer safety, um, that, the, that the individual might actually somehow, uh, and I think the phrase was by uh, Judge Goldberg, the late Judge Goldberg, um, that an individual is possessed with the powers of Hercules and the skills of, of Houdini, that somehow they're going to get out of that and be able to rush and get a weapon and hurt a law enforcement officer. And Scalia says this is ridiculous. It should be based on the reasonableness. Um, and now I don't agree with Scalia on that, but I can see how the court finally came to the conclusion that the lower court 
decisions based on this bright line rule in Belton uh, had re- had resulted in some pretty um, bizarre uh, results. Um, Randolph, I think, is interesting, and, and I don't know uh, that that is this conflict between its. I mean, you could argue that it's a conflict between rights. It's the right of two individuals who both possess, uh, who have right to be in a particular home. Which individual gets to predominate? And um, uh, I could imagine that case shifting back if in, in a, a quote unquote Sotomayor court, uh, court. So I think that that is. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't mean that there isn't a, a well, let's say a slight leaning towards law enforcement when it comes, for example, to Terry. Um, and it doesn't mean that other cases uh, the court won't do what I think is, is a, a rational response, as it did in, um, in Gantt. Okay. We want to uh, use the last few minutes to take any questions or comments that you may have. Uh, Jim Bob, down here. I wanted to ask uh, Professor Luna, the uh, – you were talking about the pro- profiling, and of course the, uh, and and then and these are always coming up, of course, in cases in which something was found. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder if in the criminal justice area there's ever been studies done on not on uh, not uh, just by just of those who in which they were actually found to have weapons or, or drugs or whatever. But, uh, you know, over the last thousand times that people have been frisked with this particular profile, how often has something been found? Right. Uh, and if, if there isn't studies like that, well, why aren't there? Because there's, it seems like something you could empirically right. demonstrate the efficacy of. And I'll, I'll defer to Orrin on this. I, I, there was a study by, uh, out of, of all people who might be profiled, Elliot Spitzer's um, office um, about stops and, surg- stops and frisks in, in New York City. Um, and there, it was not a. I mean, the, the, there, there is the the question of what does reasonable suspicion mean? What does probable cause mean? When I do it with my class, I, I can do them relative to one another. I can't give you an exact number except preponderance. Um, but the hit rate on that is not particularly high, and I couldn't give you the exact number. But the the the, the report is um, is 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 uh, on the web. Um, part of the problem is that they at least were willing. They tracked these officers, and I think there were sheets that they kept on each of these contacts. Um, but in many situations, it's, it's the problem of the, the, the dog that doesn't bark, um, that, there is, that this may be happening widely, um, but, but you do not have law enforcement tracking every single contact they have. Um, my suspicion is that that is something that would be uh, a worthwhile endeavor. Whether or not the court would incorporate that into its decision-making process, um, they've taken – they've had a, um, a curious lack of, of interest sometimes when it comes to using empirical uh, evidence in criminal procedure, and although I think that would be highly rele- relevant, uh, I don't know whether that would sway them or not. And I would ask uh, Orrin whether... Orrin, do you want to briefly comment? We're um, almost out of time. Yeah, I, I, I'm not positive enough about the evidence on the, the question of the stops. I know there was, I think New Jersey uh, had uh, uh, records on automobile stops, but these would be a little bit different from, from Frisk. I mean, s- similar, but, um, but yeah, the statistics are not great. And of course, you run up to the problem that the, the cases that the judges and justices see are the ones where, in fact, the person had something, either a gun or drugs. So all the, the people who were frisked who had absolutely nothing, uh, the justices never see, and they generally don't sue because they have no particular damages. And even when they do sue, uh, usually they can't put together a complaint well enough to really uh, uh, make the facts clear. And it's, so you're absolutely right. It's, it's a problem that it would be great to have more empirical evidence on. Questions? Yes, ma'am. One more. Here it comes. Mesa Rich, Washington, D.C. 
I just wanted, this is not a question, I just wanted to thank Mr. Kerr for background, for those of us who are neither criminals nor criminal attorneys. <laughs> it was nice to uh, hear some background on the uh, subject. Thank you very much. Thank you for that comment. I wish we could continue the discussion, but we have run out of time. Would you please thank our panel for an interesting discussion? Thank you. Thank you.